Chapter 21. Rock the Nation. ZO2 continued to build their residency on Monday nights at Arlene's Grocery into the happening place to be. It started to feel like my old crazy country club days with Playground. It started to become a thing. On March 8, 2004, we had a release party for the debut album, Tuesdays and Thursdays, titled after the days of the week on which we rehearsed and wrote the album. Just a few short weeks later, I got an email that would change my life forever. On the morning of Monday, April 12, 2004, I woke up like it was any other morning. Madeline had stayed over the night before and was getting ready to leave for work. I decided to check my emails on the computer while she was getting ready. I had an email from Lynn Lenway, Bob Held's wife, who sometimes helped out on day-to-day activities with the band. But by no means was she a co-manager at this point. The email was addressed to me, Paulie, and Dave. It went something like this. Hey guys, it's Lynn. I wanted to see what you were doing this summer. I hope you all aren't too busy because ZO2 just got 40 dates opening for KISS on their summer tour. I had to read it a few times to even grasp the concept of what it said. I would not let myself get too excited until I understood more. I called Madeline over to read it, and she didn't seem that excited. In her defense, we had only been dating for about 10 months, and this email said that I would be going away on tour for three straight months. After her initial skepticism, she cheered up a little bit. I still didn't. Then I told my mom, who was making us all breakfast, what the email said, and she freaked out. My mom had really understood what this could mean to me. It was basically my dream come true. Next to actually being the drummer in KISS, this was the ultimate for me. Even though Madeline and I were already deeply in love in under a year, she couldn't understand all the work, practice, blood, sweat, and tears that I'd put into my drums. She didn't understand how big KISS was to me. But my mom was there from the beginning. She was there at Madison Square Garden in 1979 when I first saw KISS. She was there when I bought my first KISS album. And she was there through all the months and years of me practicing my drums to KISS albums. She was the one who gave up her bedroom after we lost our first house so I could have a place to practice and someday fulfill my dreams. That day had finally come. Even though I stopped myself from 100% celebrating yet, I saw tears well up in my mother's eyes. The sight of her with tears of joy and pride for her baby boy made me happier than the actual news of getting the kiss tour. I'd always known that family was the most important thing, but that day reassured me that without family and someone to share your dreams with, your dreams would be empty. I called Bob right away to confirm that this email wasn't some kind of sick, twisted joke. He immediately confirmed and told me how such a thing had transpired. As mentioned, Bob was pretty close friends with Paul Stanley. Bob always told us stories about how he got an old band he used to produce manage called 40 Foot Ringo a few gigs opening for Kiss. I'm not sure I ever truly believed him.
Apparently, after we finished our album, Bob had sent Paul Stanley a copy to not only listen to, but to also put it in his head that if Kiss ever needed anyone for a one-off gig to give ZO2 a call, and they wouldn't disappoint. KISS was already scheduled to kick off their summer 2004 Rock the Nation tour with Poison as the opening act. A few different rumors also had former Motley Crue bassist Nikki Sixx's band Brides of Destruction as the third band on the bill. Something happened that either caused Brides to be fired or they pulled out of the tour last minute at the beginning of April. Rumors were going around that it was because Nikki Six refused to tour in the opening slot in front of Poison. Others say it was because Kiss fired them due to drug use. It didn't really matter. All that mattered was Kiss had a last-minute opening slot on their upcoming tour, and Paul Stanley gave our manager a call and asked him if ZO2 wanted it. It was absolutely amazing to consider the different set of circumstances that had led to this exact event. All the hard work throughout the years burned me out at one point during the Valentine Smith years. Then, I decided to enjoy playing my drums again, which led me to Kiss Nation, which ultimately led me to ZO2, and straight back to Kiss. It's funny how everything always came back to Kiss, Even the disaster with Seven Wiser turned out to be a blessing in disguise. If Sandy wasn't such a douchebag, I probably would have stayed with them and then possibly missed out on this KISS tour. I never give Paulie and Dave enough credit. They had a vision to make a full-length album and finance it themselves. They were set on not waiting for things to come to them and doing it ourselves. I was absolutely against it at the time. The circumstances that led ZO2 to make that album now had brought us to this moment, the Kiss Tour. Without that album and without Bob getting it to Paul Stanley, none of this would be happening. I always give credit where credit is due. Paulie and Dave deserve a lot of credit for funding that whole album, which wound up costing upwards of $30,000. And I also give major credit to Bob Held. His contacts and him pushing us to do a full-length album got us this KISS tour. Now, it was time to make the most of it. The Rock the Nation tour was set to begin on June 10th, 2004, which gave us less than two months to figure out how the hell we were going to pull off this monumental task. Believe it or not, Paulie and I were still gigging with Kiss Nation during this time, but we knew once we got the Kiss tour, we couldn't do it anymore. We broke the news to Carlos and Ruby and finished up the last few shows we had already scheduled. It was bittersweet. It was amazing knowing that ZO2 was going to the next level and going on tour with Kiss, but in a strange way, I was going to miss my time in Kiss Nation. The only small disappointment was that the tour wouldn't include original KISS members, Ace Freely, and especially for me, Peter Chris. They had both recently been replaced by Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer. I was still thrilled beyond belief, but having my idol, Peter Chris, on that tour would have really been the cherry on the top. It was unheard of for an unsigned band like ZO2 to be on tour with a major act like KISS. 
We had no label behind us for tour support money, and we had never done a major tour before. We didn't know all of the logistics that went into it, but we were soon to get a crash course. Once the tour was confirmed, Bob's wife, Lynn, came on board officially as a co-manager. This was totally okay with us. Lynn had worked in the record industry for years and even spent a few years working directly for KISS. She would be the person to start spearheading all of the things that needed to get done before the tour started. The first thing we had to figure out was transportation. Luckily, KISS's road crew was going to be transporting all of our gear from show to show. That was one major obstacle out of the way. Now we just had to figure out how the band, Bob, a tech, and the Z's little brother Brian, who was coming along to film and document the entire tour, were going to travel across country for the next three and a half months. We knew right away that a tour bus was completely out of the question due to financial reasons. Paulie, Dave, and Bob decided to rent a large SUV Ford Explorer with a third row of seats in the back. It was going to be a miserable summer with six people and luggage traveling almost 20,000 miles in that. Or at least that was until I found the answer to our prayers one night when I was at Madeline's brother Joe's house in Staten Island. Parked in front of his house was an old RV camper. A light bulb immediately went off in my head. That was exactly what we needed. I started to research what an RV would cost to rent for the summer. It turned out that because traveling across country was what an RV was intended for, it was only a little bit more expensive than renting the Explorer. In the long run, it would actually save us money. We would now be able to skimp on many of the hotel rooms we were planning to rent and just sleep in the RV. Another luxury was that we would also be able to bring an extra person to help with the driving. Because Paulie and Dave were already bringing their brother Brian and their old friend Paul LaPlaca was coming on board as a tech, they asked me to pick who could come and help out with the driving. Of course, the first person that came to mind was my lifelong buddy, Rob Scally. Scally had been there for every band I'd ever been in. He had been there to buy Kiss albums with me and to see Kiss time and time again. I couldn't think of anyone better to bring along to share this amazing experience with. I called Scally excitingly to not only tell him the news about the Kiss tour, but to ask him to come along. He was excited beyond belief and knew that this was a dream come true for me. Unfortunately, he couldn't come on this once-in-a-lifetime experience because he had just recently become a firefighter and there was no way to take off for three and a half months. He was crushed that he couldn't be there with me, but we both understood. In hindsight, it was probably much better that Scally didn't come. He and I would have gotten into way too much trouble. I had to figure out someone to bring who would not only be responsible, but also was available for the entire summer. I then thought of the perfect person. Another lifelong friend who had just gotten laid off from his job, was responsible, and didn't drink and party enough to get me into trouble. I called Anthony Muscarella, whom we all called Musk. 
Musk would eventually be a jack of all trades for us on this tour, driver and security guard, offering help to break down gear, whatever we needed him to do, he was ready to help out. Most of all, Musk brought me a slice of sanity while I was out on the tour that summer. Like I mentioned, Paulie and Dave were very different from me. Whenever they drove me crazy on tour, I would grab Musk and we would hang out, either playing wiffle ball or just exploring the arenas. We were now almost set to hit the road. It would be me, Paulie, Dave, Bob, Brian Z, Paul LaPlaca, and Musk. The next step was to try and find some endorsements for gear and to try to get some kind of a sponsorship for the tour to help us offset some of the costs. The next two weeks consisted of making non-stop phone calls. Everyone was in charge of trying to get their own music gear endorsements, and then we all had delegated other tasks to carry out. Since I found the RV, I was in charge of trying to find a company that wanted to put its logo on it as advertising to help sponsor the tour. Tour buses and even local city buses had mesh bus wraps that companies paid to wrap the entire bus in as a huge advertisement. We thought we could get someone to do the same for the RV. Musk and I would spend the next few weeks trying to get it all done, but to no avail. Next, I would try to find a drum company that would endorse me for the tour. My first call was to my dream company, Ludwig. Ludwig was a brand I'd always wanted to play. All of my drum heroes played Ludwig, including Eric Carr. I cold called Ludwig one afternoon and asked to speak to the artist development department. As luck would have it, they connected me to the head of artist development, Todd Trent. I went into detail to explain who I was and what I was about to embark on, a tour with Kiss. Todd seemed interested and asked me what I needed and that he'd love to help me out. At the time, I was really looking for something to help me stand out while I was on stage. I knew I was only going to be traveling with a small four-piece kit, but I wanted something different. I remember seeing a recent picture of Tommy Lee of Motley Crue and his drum kit. He had an enormous bass drum that I just thought looked incredible. I had no idea what size it was, but I described this to Todd and he understood right away what I was thinking. Todd said that they didn't have anything like that in stock as a loner and because we were on such a time constraint, he said that it would be impossible to make something like that so quick. He offered me a basic kit to use for the tour, but I stupidly declined. I figured I already had a basic kit and I didn't need one from Ludwig. Dumb. A few weeks before we would be leaving for tour, Madeline surprised me with a trip to Mexico to celebrate. It was amazing. I knew she was a little worried about me going on tour, but I knew that she was the one for me and I would never do anything to jeopardize that. The day before we left for Mexico, Bob informed us that we had a new show booked at the Funky Monkey in Long Island. I told Bob that the new show conflicted with my trip to Mexico. Shockingly, he asked me to get back a few days early so I could make the show. <laughs> I actually laughed out loud at this obscene request. Of course, Paulie and Dave agreed with Bob that I should come back early. I said, do you hear what you're actually asking me to do? You want me to change my trip, 
my flights and leave my vacation early just to come back and play a no-name dump of a club out in Long Island that was booked after I already had plans. This was the first time, and unfortunately not the last, that Bob would attempt to interfere in my personal life. If ZO2 didn't have the KISS tour coming up in just a few weeks, I would have told Bob and the guys, absolutely not. Since I didn't want to ruffle any feathers right before spending three months with these guys, I gave them an option I was sure they would turn down. I told them that it was going to cost me almost $500 to switch my flights on such short notice. I knew the gig in Long Island was only paying us maybe $200 tops, so there was no way they were going to agree. Sure enough, Bob said that it was worth it to pay the extra so we could do the gig. I thought, of course he said yes. He was going to make Paulie and Dave, and ultimately me down the road, pay for it. Bob was extremely generous with other people's money. The KISS Poison ZO2 Rock the Nation Tour would start in San Antonio, Texas on June 10th, 2004. We would all meet at Paulie's apartment in Brooklyn to load the RV. We were all so excited loading the RV with snacks, drinks, pillows, and blankets. And we even figured out a way to rig a small TV and a DVD player to the sink. We knew this was going to be basically our home for the next three months. And we wanted to make sure that we had everything we needed. Even though I was about to embark on an experience of a lifetime... I was still slightly hesitant to get too overcome with joy. It all still felt a little too good to be true. There was always something in the back of my head that thought when we arrived in Texas for the first show, they either wouldn't know who the hell we were or we would be playing as a side act in the parking lot or something. Until I was on that stage, Kiss's stage, hitting the first note to our intro, I wasn't going to fully believe it was happening. The plan was to leave three days before the first show. Texas was about 1,500 miles from Brooklyn, and we planned on stopping two nights at hotels. We were so pumped and excited to get there that we wound up driving for the next 35 hours straight, only stopping to eat and pee. I'm the type of person who never gets nervous before a big event or a big gig. Mostly because I know before I ever do the gig that I am uber prepared. I always thought it was silly to be nervous if you were ready and happy to be there. Excited? Yes. Nervous? Never. But this event was different. Not because it was the biggest thing I'd ever done, but because all of the unknowns. And this time, I was nervous. Not to play in front of 20,000 people or to meet my idols. I was nervous that I would be disappointed that all of this would somehow not happen. On the day before the first show, I was still a little unsure of what kind of greeting and reception we would get. Would they even be expecting us? If they did, would they welcome us? How would the guys in Poison and Kiss feel about having some young unknown band on tour with them? There were just so many questions going into that first day. It was pretty overwhelming. But the biggest question still was, 
Is this really happening? On the morning of June 10th, we arrived at the Verizon Wireless Amphitheater around 9 a.m., which was three hours before our call time. We wanted to get there early to assess the surroundings and figure out what the procedure was going to be every day. I'm sure I was the only one still questioning if we were really going to be opening for KISS later that night. Once we arrived, we were greeted by Patrick Whitley, the production manager. Patrick was a dry Englishman that was in all honesty a little scary. Not physically scary, but scary in the fact that he really held ZO2's fate in his hands. Bob, Paulie, Dave and I walked up to him to introduce ourselves. I had a lump in my throat. This was the telltale moment. If he was expecting us, then all was okay. If he wasn't, then this might be the moment my dreams were crushed. Bob politely said, Hello, sir. ZO2 reporting for duty. Patrick paused and gave us all a look over and said, Who? My heart sank. I thought to myself, Oh no, how could this be happening? He had no idea who we even were. Patrick looked up and said, Just kidding, fellas. Good to see you. I'm not sure there had ever been a greater sounding sentence in the history of the world. He then said, Let me show you guys the stage. Patrick then passed us off to one of the stage managers, Mike. I think we used to call him Spragu or Spragu. I don't remember exactly. He brought us out to the center of the stage and began to show us exactly where our gear would be every night. I didn't really hear much of what he was saying. All I could see was the massive arena and the thousands of seats as I looked from center stage. Then I turned around and saw the enormous KISS logo and KISS's gear all set up right behind me. I just couldn't believe I would be playing in front of that every night. While Spragu was showing us around, a familiar face came over and introduced himself. He was wearing tight blue jeans, a bandana, and a cowboy hat. <laughs> yup, you guessed it, Brett Michaels from Poison. He said, What's up guys? I'm Brett. Welcome on board. He was as sweet and welcoming as could be. If Brett knew who we were and was greeting us, I guess it was official. I could finally start to breathe a little. This was really happening. Next, it was time to go backstage and see what it was like. In all the years of me being a huge music fan, I had never been backstage at a concert. It wasn't like it is today with bands offering meet and greets and special backstage tours. When I was growing up, backstage always meant party. The first stop backstage was catering. Paulie and Dave didn't drink at all, so the one thing that we all had in common and could enjoy together was eating like animals. After we filled our plates with as much food as humanly possible, I heard a familiar voice. Standing two feet away from us were Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Paul and Bob immediately exchanged some pleasantries. Then Bob called us over so we could meet. Paulie and I had already met them when we filmed Mock Rock for VH1, but we had our kiss makeup on back then. So I'm pretty sure that Gene and Paul never even realized 
it was us from Kiss Nation. Not that we were embarrassed by it or anything, but we just never even brought it up to them. Paul seemed friendly enough giving us all a fist bump. He didn't really like to shake hands because he was a bit of a germaphobe. Gene, on the other hand, couldn't have been friendlier. He immediately said, Stand back a little. Let me take a look at you boys. He then pointed at Dave and me and said, These two look like rock stars. This one, pointing at Paulie, looks like he should be in college. That's my gene interpretation. <laughs> take it for what it is. We all erupted in laughter, except for poor Paulie, who was completely crushed. Just like Eric Singer had done to him in Puerto Rico, Gene destroyed him on the very first day of the tour. <laughs> Once we finished with all of our hellos, it was time to load onto the stage. Once the three of us set up, it was time to get a line check. I'll never forget the first time I hit my bass drum that sunny afternoon in San Antonio. It was the greatest, most powerful thing I've ever heard. Growing up, whenever I went to an arena to see a band, the first thing I always noticed was how massive the drum sounded. Now, it was my turn. My turn to have some kid in the audience notice how powerful and explosive my drum sounded. I was ready. Minutes before showtime, we gathered backstage to tell each other to kick ass and have fun. We put our fists in, looked each other in the eye, and knew we were about to do something special. Before leaving for tour, people warned us about the KISS crowd. I also knew firsthand, having seen them a dozen times, that the KISS crowd wasn't very receptive to the opening band. They wanted KISS, and they didn't want to hear or see anyone else. Even the crew had told us to not get discouraged if the crowd booed or didn't respond positively. It didn't matter to me. We were about to hit the stage in front of 12,000 people and open for KISS. Everything I'd worked for in my entire life led me to this exact spot. I was going to enjoy it no matter what. As we walked out onto the stage, people were still filing into the arena. Most didn't even know there was a third band on the bill. They thought it was just Poison and Kiss. We went out there to make sure they never forgot us. Paulie and Dave turned toward me to signal for the first downbeat of our intro. We hit that massive first chord and it felt like the world shook.
The crowd was skeptical, but began to take notice during our opening song, Taking Me Down. I could see people's heads starting to bop during our second song, Living Now. And by the time we hit our ballad, Dirty Water, I could see the people in the audience focused on the stage and enjoying what they heard. We were quickly approaching our finishing number, Fly On Your Wings, and I didn't want the night to end. It was all going by way too fast. I almost expected to have a frozen moment, but this was the one time 
that my adrenaline and sheer joy and happiness overwhelmed me so much that I was finding it hard to focus and slow things down. During the rumble of our last song, Paulie began to talk to the audience. He thanked them for being there and told them that we would be out by the merch booth selling CDs and t-shirts if anyone wanted to come by and say hello. As the low rumble Dave and I were creating began to slowly build, Paulie asked the crowd, Are you ready? The crowd gave a little cheer. He asked again, Are you ready for a party tonight? The crowd responded a little more. Paulie knew he had them and asked, Then, Where's the party tonight? He answered his own question with a scream, It's here! It's here! As his words became more powerful, Dave and I got more powerful. And as the three of us were pouring every ounce of energy we had into that build, the audience became more energized and started to rise. Right at the moment when we finally reached our peak together, the song kicked in and the crowd exploded. For the next four and a half minutes, the crowd was on their feet and sent us off the stage to a standing ovation and loud roar. You know what that is? Are you feeling that? Right here? That's a pulse, baby. That's a beat, man! We call that rock and roll. You know a little bit about that, right? On the drums, Joey Quesada. On the bass guitar and the official sponsor of the ab roller, <laughs> my brother David Z. <laughs> my name is Paulie Z with ZO2. I gotta tell you, it is a pleasure. That's right, it's a pleasure to be here tonight with Kiss and Poison. This is a dream come true, and I know it is for you too. But I gotta tell you, the best part about being here is seeing you guys here early. That's right. You didn't have to come. You could have watched another episode of your favorite show, right? You could have stayed around, made a burger or two, but you came here early. You know why? I say you know why? Because you know what time the party starts. It's right now. Where is it? It's here. It's here. You're here. We're here. Let me hear. Let me hear. Let me hear. Yeah! 
direction, have no direction. Tell me where's the connection? Yeah, I've come into your life. It's on the second bite. In the side and for yourself for flight. See a smile at that dashboard. I know that he's looking at you. Looking at you. See a plane, but what you really say is getting right through. We had done it. Not only had I just lived my dreams opening for KISS, but we actually won the crowd over and kicked ass. We erupted when we all met backstage. High fives, hugs, and tears of joy were flying everywhere. I don't think I've ever felt that kind of energy, excitement, or adrenaline in my life. This would go down as the all-time number one greatest show I'd ever played in the history of my career. I don't believe it could ever be or will ever be topped. We all did it together. And right here in the pages of this book, I want to formally thank Paulie, Dave, Bob, and Lynn 
for helping make my dreams come true. I'll never forget it. Thank you. We were still flying high and celebrating when we realized that the night had just begun. We had to rush to pack our gear so we could get out to the merchandise stand to meet the crowd and hopefully sell a few CDs and t-shirts. Once we were done packing our gear, we raced up to the merch stand where they told us that they would be selling our stuff. When we got there, we weren't expecting to see what was in front of our eyes. Not only did we have a huge crowd of people waiting for us, but our merch was side by side with kisses and poisons. It was surreal. It was a surreal moment to see my face on a t-shirt being sold right next to a KISS t-shirt. Wow. When the crowd of people surrounding the merch stand finally saw us approaching, we were bombarded. I don't think the three of us were expecting such a wild reception. Everyone wanted a piece of us, either an autograph, a picture, or just to chat with us and tell us how much they enjoyed the show. After about 20 minutes of being mobbed, as I was signing someone's CD, another person shouted, Where can I get that CD? I pointed and replied, Right over there at the merch stand. He shouted back, They just told me they were sold out. I was taken aback by that. We were sold out already? I thought to myself excitedly. We could hear Poison playing in the background while we were finishing up with our autographs and talking with everyone. Once the crowd began to wind down, we decided we wanted to run to see some of Poison's set. Just like when I was a kid and ran everywhere, we did it again. We ran all the way from the merch stand to the front row. The other audience members didn't mind at all that we were there. In fact, they loved it. We were greeted like rock stars. So much so that it became a little awkward because Poison was on stage performing and we were getting so much attention in the front row. We had to tell people to stop and watch the show. Brett saw us right away and gave us a little head nod as if to say, Good job, boys. Guitarist CeCe DeVille and drummer Ricky Rocket did the same. We only got to enjoy the last two songs of Poison's set due to all the time we spent at the merch stand. As soon as Poison said goodnight, we were once again bombarded with fans from all sides. The merch booth a few minutes earlier was one thing, but this was really nuts. Everyone was surrounding us and wanting to talk to us. It was insane and amazing at the same time. We still hadn't eaten anything since lunch at around 1 p.m., and we decided if we wanted to watch KISS, and of course we did, we would have to go eat fast. Our plan was then to come right back to the front row and watch our idols tear up the stage. I had never seen KISS from the front row, and I wasn't going to miss this opportunity to see them on the first night of our tour. We told all of the fans around us that we'd be back out for KISS and then to meet us at the merch booth after KISS finished. Paulie, Dave, and I went backstage to scarf down some food as quickly as possible. We were all still on such a high, it was incredible. We told Bob about selling out the CDs at the merch stand and suggested that he try to get more over there because we planned on heading back after we watched KISS. He said, I'm on it and ran off to see what he could do. Bob seemed just as excited as we were. He knew big things were about to happen, 
and he was acting like a little kid too. We were all giddy with the events of the day so far. As we were finishing our last bite of food, we started to hear a deep humming noise coming from the stage. We knew it was time. Once again, we raced to the front of the stage. There was a large black curtain now hanging in front. As the hum grew louder, a familiar voice began to shout. The arena erupted, and so did we. As soon as that curtain dropped, I was no longer Joey, the drummer of ZO2, that had just played the stage in front of me. I was the five-year-old boy who was eating his hot dog in Madison Square Garden 25 years earlier. Gene immediately acknowledged us in the front row and began pointing at us and doing a little dance. I'm not sure but I think he was making fun of Dave's stage dance moves. Paul Stanley then pranced his way over and gave us a cool thumbs up, signaling what he thought of our show. Holy shit, I thought. I'm watching Kiss from the front row, and Gene and Paul both personally gestured to us what a great job they thought we did. My five-year-old self would have fainted. Kiss blasted through an hour and a half of absolute classics. The plan was to watch the show from the front row until the beginning of the last song, which we all knew would be rock and roll all night. Right before they began the last song, we would start heading back towards the sound man so we could beat the crowd to the merch booth when Kiss finally said goodnight. As we walked back, I drifted away a little and decided to watch rock and roll all night by myself. I wanted to breathe for a second and reflect on this incredible day. I drifted away and found myself looking up into the night sky. This is the exact moment that this book began. This was my frozen moment at the greatest show of my life. It was a moment solidified in time and one that I will never forget. When I finally snapped back into real time, I knew I had to get to the merch stand to see if we could meet with another rush of people on their way out of the arena. The strategy worked perfectly, and we were once again met with a mob of people waiting for us. The first day of the KISS tour worked out so perfectly that we decided to do this exact routine every night for the whole tour. It was the start of one wild and amazing summer. If possible, the next night in Dallas was even better. Gone were all the doubts about being part of the tour. We arrived in Dallas ready to conquer, not hoping to be accepted. The capacity crowd was even more receptive than the night before. All 11,000 fans were on their feet during our last song, Fly On Your Wings. The first night wasn't a fluke. The KISS crowd was not only accepting us, they were loving us. We were once again bombarded by fans when we went down to the front row to watch Poison. 
T-shirts and CDs were sold out before Kiss ever finished playing, and we once again finished the night watching our idols kick ass on stage. After the show and another trip to the merch stand to meet fans, Bob brought us into Kiss's hospitality suite. This was basically where Kiss could have dinner and relax if they didn't feel like eating and catering with everyone else. There were steak, chicken, fish, and about a half a dozen different types of desserts. We were in heaven. There was nothing better than celebrating a long, amazing show with a big meal. As we started to eat, Kiss's road crew began coming in and out to shower and also pick on Kiss's leftovers. I guess this was a regular routine for them. Each guy was nicer than the next, and we really bonded with the road crew that night. Everyone was so friendly and nice, until we met Gene's roadie, Spike. Spike was as uptight and miserable a person I'd ever met in my life. We asked what was wrong and why he was so down. He explained, because my boss is an asshole, that's why. He began telling us horror stories about how Gene would spit on him, scream at him, and even kick him during the show. We couldn't believe it. Gene, so far to us, seemed like a real sweetheart. After Spike's horror stories, he went into the bathroom to take a shower. We all agreed that we had to find a way to cheer Spike up when he returned. Once Spike was finished with his shower, We began talking to him again about the other stuff he did on the road. He informed us that he was actually the voice behind Kiss's famous intro, You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best. He'd been doing it since the reunion tour in 1996. That was the opening we needed. We got down on our hands and knees and started bowing to him, a la Wayne's World, and chanted, We're not worthy! We're not worthy! He finally cracked a smile. Before too long, we had him teaching us how to properly deliver those magical words. That was just who we were. Bright-eyed kids enjoying life. I think our youthfulness and happiness was infectious to anyone that came across our paths that summer. Spike included. We received some much-deserving news while we were on our way to our next stop. Seven Wiser, the band with which I had a falling out, had been dropped by Windup Records a week after their album was released. It turned out that they just couldn't work with that asshole manager Sandy anymore and decided it wasn't worth dealing with them. I did feel badly for the few guys in the band that I got along with, like Joe Bell and Tudor, but hearing that Sandy was the cause of them being dropped made me so happy. It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Karma's a bitch, dude. The next three stops were Houston, Denver, and Albuquerque. Musk and I were in charge of driving the night shift from about 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. Musk would drive and I would be in charge of the map. Remember, this was before GPS. We needed a giant map open at all times so we could follow the highways across the country. Musk and I drove the other guys crazy by blasting 80s pop music all night and singing along at the top of our lungs to songs like Culture Club's Karma Chameleon or Cyndi Lauper's 
girls just want to have fun. This drove Bob absolutely mad all summer. It was before the Houston show that we got to see Kiss soundcheck for the very first time. This was something I'd always wanted to experience, and it definitely didn't disappoint. We were the only ones watching, and Kiss noticed. Paul would shout out to us, What do you guys want to hear? We yelled back the obscurest songs possible, and they would actually attempt playing them. I think I shouted, The Oath! It was like our own private Kiss concert, and they were taking requests. In a way, this was even more enjoyable than watching them from the front row every night. This private show was quickly added to our daily routine. Denver and Albuquerque were more of the same. Pure ecstasy every day and night. Every moment was a dream come true. To add to my fantasy, we had lunch with Gene Simmons in New Mexico. It wasn't planned or anything, We were just sitting down and catering, and Gene walked in and sat with us. He began telling us, You know, you guys are doing a fabulous job so far. We of course thanked him and then gave him a copy of our CD, and he immediately loved the cover. We told him that we were selling out every night, and he was really impressed. He gladly took the CD and began talking to us about the music industry. Gene was extremely smart and very intellectual, but he also had a skewed view on things. It was my first real experience having a long conversation with someone rich and famous, and it was very enlightening. As down-to-earth as he was, he just didn't think like the everyday person. He couldn't or shouldn't. He'd been rich and famous since he was in his early 20s, for about 30 years at this point. He was constantly surrounded by people that would yes him to death. Which is why he was in shock when we started to debate and disagree with him on some issues. Not only was he in shock, but I could see he was enjoying it. A man like Gene wanted to debate. If you said the sky was blue, Gene would say, Well, actually, the sky is black and the atmosphere just makes it look blue. This turned out to be another thing that we would add to our daily routine. Lunch and debate hour with Gene Simmons. We really had an unbelievable schedule that we were starting to build up. Here's a quick rundown of a typical day with ZO2 on the KISS tour. 8 a.m. Arrive at the city in which we played that night. 9 a.m. Eat breakfast at the local Denny's or Waffle House. 12 p.m. Arrive at the venue. Check catering to see what's for lunch. Usually hang with Gene for a little while and debate about something. 2 p.m. Play a little wiffle ball or football in the parking lot. Sometimes just throw the football with Brett. 3 p.m. Start unpacking all the gear and getting it ready for stage. 4 p.m. Watch KISS do sound check. 5.30 p.m. Do the ZO2 sound check. 6 p.m. Pack up our dinner for catering to eat after the show. 6.30 p.m. Get dressed and ready. 7 to 7.30 p.m. Showtime. 7.45. Pack up our gear. 8.15. 
Scarf down some dinner as fast as we can. 8.45. Watch the end of Poison set from the front row. 9 to 9.30. ZO2 meet and greet at the merch stand. 9.31. Run to see Kiss as fast as we can to the front row. (laughs) 10.45. Watch the end of the Kiss set near the sound man. 10.55 to 12.30. ZO2 meet and greet at the merch stand. 12.30 a.m. Look for scraps at catering to bring to the RV. 1 a.m. Begin traveling to the next city. 2 to 7 a.m. Switch drivers on and off. Try to sleep a few hours in between shifts. 8 a.m. Start all over again. Chapter 22 Turning Idols into Peers After New Mexico, we began to travel up the West Coast, doing shows in L.A. and San Francisco, actually right outside of San Fran in Concord, California. We were flying higher than ever. After those shows, we had a full day travel to get to our next destination, Portland, Oregon. At about 7 p.m. on the day before the Portland show, We got word that because of the strict sound curfew in Portland, ZO2 had to be bumped from the show. Needless to say, we were extremely disappointed. But the bigger fear was that this would happen more often. Thankfully, this was the one and only time. We decided that we would still go to the Portland show to show our support for Kiss and Poison, which turned out to be a very good idea. Because it was essentially a day off for us, we decided we would just lounge and play wiffle ball in the parking lot most of the day. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed a figure in the distance watching the game. It was none other than Paul Stanley. I quickly jogged over to him and said, Hey Paul, do you want to play? Never in my wildest imagination did I think he'd say yes. I was just asking to be nice because I saw him watching. He replied, Sure, I'll take an at-bat. Paul and I walked over to join the game. I started to pitch to Paul, but it wasn't in my competitive nature to lob pitches in so he could hit them. I threw three straight curveballs and he was out. I couldn't believe that a year ago, I was in the Hamptons with my friends playing wiffle ball every day, and now I was pitching to kisses Paul Stanley. Paul seemed a little agitated by my curves, so I let Paulie pitch to him. Before he began, I ran into catering to grab a few waters for everybody. As soon as I walked in, I saw Gene and Eric. Gene yelled, Butterfuco! Gene always called me Butterfuco because of Joey Butterfuco from the popular Amy Fisher news story from the 90s. I went over and told them, Hey, we're playing wiffle ball outside. Paul's playing. Come and play with us. They said yes right away and seemed genuinely excited. I think ZO2 was a nice shot in the arm for Paul and Gene that summer. We had this unbridled innocence and youth about us that they enjoyed. Gene seemed like a little kid when I asked him to come play ball with us. As soon as I walked out with Gene and Eric, it was official. It had become ZO2 vs. Kiss in Wiffle Ball. 
I started pitching a few warm-up curveballs to Gene, and he couldn't believe how I was making the ball curve. He ducked away from every pitch, even though they were hitting the strike zone. After warm-ups, we decided to pitch to our counterparts. Paulie Z would pitch to Paul Stanley, Dave Z would pitch to Gene Simmons, and I would pitch to Eric Singer. Paulie started against Paul, and his first pitch was a strike right down the middle. Feeling a little brazen and cocky, Paulie Z told Paul, I call that pitch my love gun. Here comes the destroyer. (laughs) Everyone began to crack up. That was until Paul's comeback. Be careful. We can still throw you off this tour. Paul ripped the double right after that. Thank God. Gene was next. Gene decided to hold the wiffle ball bat with only one hand and easily blasted a double off Dave. He walked away and gave Paul a high five as if to silently say, let's take these kids down. It was now my turn to pitch to Eric. Gene yelled, oh, come on. He's like a professional pitcher. I laughed and then struck Eric out on three consecutive pitches. Before it was time for Kiss to pitch to us, Brett Michaels, who was off to the side watching, yelled, Hey, let me get an at-bat, as if to say, I can hit better than those guys. Brett was a known athlete, and he was always in the parking lot either throwing a football or having a softball catch. Because of this, they all wanted me to pitch to him. Sort of like a challenge to see if I could get him out. Brett was pretty good at sports, but he was no match for me in wiffle ball. On the first pitch, I threw him a slow overhand curve. He didn't duck out of the way like Gene did, but his knees definitely buckled a little. Strike one. The second pitch I threw looked like the same pitch to the batter, but it was actually a slider low and away. He took a big, massive swing and missed. Strike two. He looked a little upset. I knew it was over before I even threw the third pitch. I then tossed a gentle riser that I knew would end up about two feet over his head, even though it looked like it was going right down the middle. Sure enough, Brett couldn't lay off, and it was strike three. (laughs) He tossed the bat up in the air and said, forget it. I think this also scared everyone else off because Kiss also walked away shaking their heads in disbelief. So, technically, ZO2 won. Even though I basically ended the game before it began, I couldn't hold back and not really pitch to Brett. After that, everyone was scared to play wiffle ball with me for the rest of the tour. As amazing as this whole tour experience had been, this might have been my favorite moment of all. It was just genuine fun. Gene, Paul, Eric, and Brett were really having a good time. They had been rock stars for so long and had people bowing down to them for so long that I don't think they ever could just let their guards down and have fun. It was a great day. After that day in Portland, our relationship with Kiss became even closer. Not only would Gene seek us out every day to hang, but Kiss would put on a special performance for us every sound check. We even started a little game with Gene and Paul. During sound check, they would continuously try to hit us with picks. Now, over the years, they had become throwing masters. 
they could easily launch a pick 40 or 50 rows, and both were dead accurate. We would run in and out of the rows, ducking and dodging while they shot rapid fire at us. Paul nailed me right in the bridge of the nose one day and made me bleed pretty badly. He apologized backstage and said, that's why we don't throw picks during the show anymore. People used to get hurt all the time. Kiss's soundcheck got so out of hand after a while that their tour manager, Paco, had to pull us aside and tell us to please only come out for a little bit during soundcheck. He explained, They're performing for you guys every day and loving it. Soundcheck is running too long and causing the whole crew to be behind schedule. In a weird way, I felt like we gave Kiss a shot of youth on that tour. They were like our crazy uncles trying to entertain us every day. After Portland, we started to head east and play places like Minneapolis, Kansas City, St. Louis, and Detroit. Anyone that's ever been to a KISS concert knows they have special effects galore. Two highlights of the show are when Gene flies to the top of the arena to sing God of Thunder and when Paul soars over the audience to sing Love Gun. One afternoon, while KISS's road crew was setting up, they asked if we all wanted to try out one of the flying rigs. I think we yelled, Holy shit! Really? All at the same time. This was another dream come true for me. I remember being five years old at Madison Square Garden and watching Gene fly into the air. It was magical. And now, I would be getting to experience it for myself. There was, though, one problem. I'm actually pretty terrified of heights, and so I was really nervous. But there was no way I was passing up this opportunity. The first thing the rig tech told all of us was, don't grab the wire as you're being lifted into the air. Of course, what's the first thing I did as soon as I catapulted into the air? Grab the wire. (laughs) I was scared shitless, but excited beyond belief. What an amazing experience it was to fly like Gene, the demon. After we all got our chance to fly on Gene's rig, we did Paul's next. This was great, but not as exciting to me as Gene's. Paul didn't do this trick back in the 70s, so it wasn't as magical to me, but still loads of fun. Paul's setup was a wire that hung from the rafters with a small step at the bottom. Paul would step up and the rig would fly him over the crowd to a small platform on the other side of the arena. Even though it wasn't as high as Gene's, it was even scarier because I wasn't strapped in at all. I had to hold on for dear life or I could fall 30 feet onto the chairs of the arena floor. Paulie's and Dave's brother, Brian, was last to go. When he got to the middle of the arena, the person operating the flying machine decided to play a joke and leave him dangling high above the floor for a little while. Brian was screaming, but we were all on the floor laughing. (laughs) Good times. After our show in Detroit, we realized that we had been on the road for almost a full month and we hadn't emptied out our waste compartment. Even though we had a strict rule of no dumps on the RV, we knew it was still very full of just urine. Luckily, we found the perfect time to empty it. Dave and our tech, Paul LaPlaca, had met a few girls at the show earlier that night, 
and we were parked outside their apartment somewhere in the suburbs of Detroit. When we rented the RV, the owner told us the correct protocol for emptying the waste. We were supposed to take it to a truck stop on the highway and hook the large hose to the sewer system. But because we were just parked and waiting for Dave and La Placa, we decided this would be as good a time as any to empty it out. After losing a bet, Musk and Paulie would be the ones to open the latch. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I cheated on that. As they got ready to open the waste compartment, I was standing in the RV, leaning out the door watching. Once they pulled that latch and the drain opened, I was hit with the most putrid odor I'd ever smelled in my life. Paulie and Musk began screaming as a rapid river of piss flowed down the street into the nearby sewer. Just then, Dave and the Plocker were walking up the street towards the RV and began yelling, Oh my God, what's that smell? We all jumped back into the RV and got the hell out of there as fast as we could. We heard later that summer that Dave Matthews' tour bus had a major lawsuit against them for dumping their waste tank off a bridge. We're lucky nobody saw us. Sound check was always an adventure for ZO2. After line check, the sound man always asked us to play a quick song to get levels. We were still such a new band that we really didn't know any cover songs together. The only songs that we all knew were Kiss songs. And one other, That Thing You Do by The Wonders from the Tom Hanks movie. We all loved that movie so much. I think we watched it about a hundred times in the RV that summer. One day in Nashville, Tennessee, while sound checking, I jokingly began playing the intro to Kiss's Love Gun. Paulie and Dave immediately joined in. What are we doing, we all thought as we looked at each other. We then gave each other another quick glance as if to say, eh, fuck it, and we continued on. Midway through the first chorus, we saw Paul Stanley and Tommy Thayer stroll onto the stage. Uh-oh, I thought. Are they going to be pissed? Not only were they not mad that we were doing their song, but Paul Stanley grabbed the microphone and started to sing the second verse. Tommy joined in right behind with his guitar. I couldn't believe it. Holy shit. I'm jamming with Kiss. Paulie then pointed behind me and I saw the Kiss logo flashing above me. If I could only zap myself back in time to my five-year-old self and tell him that one day you'll be jamming with Kiss on Kiss's stage as the Kiss logo flashed behind you. Wow. As I mentioned, Paul Stanley was a little bit of a germaphobe, and a few times, Paulie tried to sing backup vocals with him. But sharing the mic clearly made Paul Stanley a little standoffish. I shot Paulie a look of death, as if to say, if you chase Paul Stanley off this stage because of your dirty breath, I will kill you. <laughs> My death glance worked because Paulie quickly got the hint. Just as the solo section started to kick in with Tommy taking the lead, Eric Singer walked onto the stage with his arms crossed. Eric was very confused by what was happening, and I think maybe a little jealous that we sounded so good. We ended the song on a big open chord, and I saw Paul Stanley turn his back toward me and look up to the rafters. At first, I had no idea what he was doing. Thank God I quickly realized 
that he was signaling me to do the ending the way Kiss did it live every night. He wanted me to play the intro at a fast speed while he pretended to shoot the fireworks in the rafters. I hit the ending, and sure enough, Paul did his part. It was perfect, like I had played it with him a million times. He gave me a quick fist bump and said, Great job, dude. Sound check was over, and we were flying high. Soon after, the sound man came over to us and said that what we had done was cool, but that he didn't think we should ever play a Kiss song during sound check again. We said, why not? They didn't seem to mind. He replied, because you guys sounded better than Kiss, that's why. <laughs> that was our first and last time jamming on a Kiss song for sound check. The night after in Indianapolis, ZO2 had just finished sound check on stage, and Gene came out to hang with us and to mess with his bass a little. We started talking and began asking him some kiss questions, which he loved to answer. Paulie asked, Hey, why did you guys go back to regular tuning in the 80s, but still detune during the live shows? Kiss had always detuned throughout the 70s, and all that meant was that they were tuning their guitars lower to achieve a heavier, bluesier type sound. This was pretty common back in the 70s for rock bands. Gene's response was classic. What do you mean? We didn't do that. Maybe your CD player is playing those albums at a faster speed. <laughs> we began to all laugh in disbelief at what we just heard. Paulie tried to explain more, but Gene was insistent that Paulie didn't know what he was talking about. Paulie even went so far as to bet Gene $20. The bet was, if Paulie was right, then Gene had to pay him $20 and write on the bill, I was wrong, Paulie Z was right. If Gene was correct, then during our set later that night, Paulie would have to say to the crowd, don't bet Gene Simmons, he's always right. Now the only question was, how are we going to find out who was right? Just then, Tommy Thayer walked onto the stage and Paulie quickly asked him the question. Tommy laughed and pleaded the fifth. There was no way he was going to take our side over Gene's. Tommy said, there's Paul, go ask him. We ran over to Paul Stanley and posed the same question. Did you guys tune back up in the 80s? He responded right away with, yeah. Gene looked completely baffled and said, Why would we do such a thing? Paul responded, I guess we did it so I could sing higher. Gene looked completely dumbfounded. That $20 bill is still one of Paulie's most prized possessions. After shows in Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, Chicago, Cleveland, and Cincinnati, we arrived in Camden, New Jersey, and were almost back home. Right after lunch, someone from the Poison camp came running over to talk to our manager, Bob, in private. He explained that they had a possible emergency brewing. CeCe DeVille had locked himself in his hotel room on some sort of drug or alcohol binge and was refusing to come to the show. This came as a complete shock because as far as we knew, everyone in Poison was clean and sober at this point. <laughs> I guess not. Bob said, that's terrible news, but what would you like me to do? Their tour manager asked if there was any way Paulie could learn the set by Showtime. 
So for the next four hours, Paulie sat in the RV with his guitar and attempted to learn the whole Poison set just in case CeCe didn't show up. Thank God, and at the last minute, CeCe arrived and played a flawless show. (laughs) Paulie let out a sigh of relief. To prevent this from happening again, Poison flew out former Skid Row guitarist Dave the Snake Sabo to travel with them for the rest of the tour, just in case. As we worked our way across the whole country, it was almost time for us to get back and play in our hometown of New York. We had two local shows on the tour that all of our friends and family were going to attend, Jones Beach in Long Island and PNC Arts Center in New Jersey. I would always call my mom and Madeline to check in to see how they were. Madeline was sleeping over and staying with my mom a few times a week because my mom had been pretty sick over the last few years. I was so thankful to have Madeline spending time with her while I was on tour. I wanted more than anything for my mom to attend one of the local shows. After everything she had done and sacrificed for me over the years, I needed to have her there when I played on the same stage as Kiss in New York. Still, she kept telling me that she didn't think she would be able to make it. Her asthma and emphysema made it difficult for her to get around. I remember talking to Gene one day at lunch and was telling him about my mom. He said, Tell her we will send a limo for her. Anything she needs. Gene was a mama's boy, just like I was, and he understood what it meant to me for her to be there. For everyone out there that says Gene is just a money-hungry businessman, I can tell you that he has a heart of gold. Madeline, with Paulie's girlfriend Kim, came to meet us in Boston to spend a few days on the road with us. I loved having Madeline experience this amazing adventure with me. I asked her about what my mom had said about coming to see a show. I don't think she's going to be up for it, she said. She wants more than anything to be there, but is nervous about her breathing. I knew there was nothing I could do to convince her that she would be okay and that I would make sure that she was treated like a queen. I had an all-access pass made for her and even had Jean call her one day to try to reassure her, but it didn't work. On July 20th and 21st, we would finally be playing our hometown. While we were local, we decided to go home and see our families and sleep in our own beds. The first night I arrived home, my mom and Madeline greeted me with a little celebration. They made posters with, congratulations on them, and drew me all these amazing pictures. I felt so loved and overwhelmed with joy. I still have those posters to this day. Right before our hometown shows, we had decided that we would give every person who worked on the tour either a ZO2 shirt or a sweatshirt as a special thank you for all they'd done for us. It turned out to be a great move. For the rest of the tour, It looked like the road crew belonged to ZO2, especially in New York. Gene even came up to us and said, Very smart PR move giving the crew your shirts. Free advertising. Good work, boys. Even though Paul was the one who had given us the shot to come on tour with Kiss, by this point, Gene had really taken us under his wing. On days like this, he just seemed proud of us like a dad who was proud of his boys. 
The two local shows at PNC Arts Center and Jones Beach were absolutely incredible. I had a lot of friends and family at both, and I had all access passes made for my brother and his wife Liz. Plus, I even got my father a ticket to see the show. All my friends from grammar school were coming, along with Carlos and Ruby from Kiss Nation. It was so great to have my friends that dressed with me as Kiss in my school talent show many years ago, and Carlos and Ruby from my Kiss tribute band there to experience this with me. These shows were a true party and homecoming for ZO2. The love and support from our friends and family was unreal. Kiss and Poison seemed excited for us as well. Brett was telling me one day about his first homecoming show after Poison had made it. And Paul Stanley wished me luck backstage, telling me to enjoy every minute of it. I just wished my mom was there to see it all. While we were home for a couple of days, we decided to bring the RV back for a quick checkup and maintenance. When we originally rented the RV, they went over some instructions with Paulie. One main thing was maintenance on the back compartment generator. Paulie had told us that we needed to change the oil after every 500 hours of use, but it turned out that we actually needed to change it after every 50 to 100 hours of use. <laughs> we had completely fried the generator and it would take them three to four days to replace it. We couldn't wait three or four days. We had a show in Scranton, Pennsylvania the next day. They told us if we needed it right away that we had to take it without the back compartment generator, which essentially meant no air conditioning. And unfortunately for us, we were headed south on this leg of the tour. Anyone who has ever traveled to Georgia, Florida, or Alabama in the dead of summer knows AC is a must. It got so bad at one point, I had to sleep with frozen push-up ices on my head. <laughs> it really didn't matter, though. We were still having the time of our lives. My friend Billy and his wife were out of town when ZO2 played in New York, so they planned a special trip to Tampa, Florida just to see the show. I met Billy early in the day to show him around the arena. I began the tour by showing him how the crew set up the stage. As we were watching the crew, Billy pointed and asked, Why are they taking those lights down? Sure enough, the crew was taking stuff down instead of putting it up. A few minutes later, we all got word that the show was canceled due to Paul Stanley's health. It was so hot the night before in West Palm Beach that Paul became dehydrated and needed an IV. He was still suffering from that dehydration and was unable to perform in Tampa. <laughs> Billy had made the trip for nothing. We were now nearing the end of the tour and we began to hear stories about the headliners road crew playing pranks on young opening bands. We assumed these were just stories to make us nervous and paranoid, at least until our show in Birmingham, Alabama. ZO2 began each show the same exact way, with a big open chord and crash cymbals. On this particular day, as soon as I hit my crash cymbals, I was covered in baby powder that had been placed on top of my cymbals. Even though I would have to play the rest of the show looking like a ghost, I laughed to myself and thought it actually looked like a pretty cool effect for our opening. Almost like an explosion with a giant cloud of smoke. I thought it was a very harmless prank until I realized that because of the baby powder, my hands and sticks had become extremely slippery, causing both sticks to fly out of my hands on the next downbeat. Again, 
I laughed it off because I knew I had my stick bag attached to my floor tom and could quickly replace both sticks. But when I reached down, I found all of my spare drumsticks duct taped together. So here I was, in the middle of ZO2's first song, opening for Kiss and Poison, in front of about 10,000 fans, and I had no sticks. As I frantically began to rip at the duct tape to free a pair of sticks, while trying to keep a beat with my other hand and feet, I glanced to the side of the stage to see Poison drummer Ricky Rocket, Kiss's drummer Eric Singer, and his drum tech Joey Arias laughing so hard they were in tears. Those bastards. Somehow, I got through the rest of the show. We would play the last show with Poison in Atlanta, Georgia on August 4th. After that, we drove back home to New York to return the RV that now had accumulated almost 20,000 miles. We would then fly out to meet Kiss for two more shows in Texas with just ZO2 as the opener. Poison was great to us through the whole tour. On their last day, they told us that they were planning their 30th anniversary tour in a few years and they would love to have us on it. As sad as it was to know we weren't going to see the guys from Poison anymore, we were unbelievably excited because the last two shows of the tour would be just Kiss and ZO2. Once we got home from Atlanta, we had a few days off before flying out to Texas. I missed my mom and Madeline tremendously and loved being back home with them. It was really the first time we had to sit back and enjoy what we had just accomplished. Sometimes that's difficult to do because people are always looking ahead to the next thing. I always found time to savor those moments. On August 10, 2004, ZO2 flew out to Texas to meet back up with KISS. Shortly after we arrived at the arena, I was scheduled to do a phone interview with a local radio station. This type of stuff was happening pretty regularly now, and I was doing the phone interview in the backstage dressing room area when all of a sudden, Gene saw me and started screaming, Yo, Butterfuco! Hey, everyone! Butterfuco is back! <laughs> it put a big smile on my face. The two shows opening directly for KISS were absolutely unbelievable. Both arenas were indoors and we got an extra 20 minutes to play. Don't get me wrong, the whole tour was literally a dream come true. But something about seeing just KISS and ZO2 on the billboards and marquees was magical. Having that week off in between really gave us a chance to reflect back on the whole tour and fully appreciate these last two shows. The KISS video crew even professionally filmed the final show in Hidalgo, Texas for us. We still have to release that full show one day. One, two, three, go! Sing when she's covered 
We gave everything we had during those final two shows. We had so much energy, and by now we were completely firing on all cylinders. The crowds were massive and electric, and the response for ZO2 was the biggest all tour. Because this was our second trip through Texas, 
A lot of fans came up to us during our meet and greet and said they came back specifically to see ZO2. We were once again casually reminded of the possibility of pranks played on the opening band, especially on the very last show. We were told that we should watch our gear at all costs. The road crew relayed to us stories of different practical jokes they had played over the years. They said, one time we tied fishing wire to every single piece of gear on the stage and then one by one lifted it into the rafters. By the time the opening band finished their set, they had no gear left. We became so paranoid that after our final soundtrack, we never left the stage. We stayed there for another hour. We ate dinner on the stage and guarded our gear. We saw people from the crew after the show and we basically laughed and said, ha ha ha, you didn't get us because we stayed on stage and guarded our gear all day. You couldn't prank us. They started laughing and said, yeah, that's the prank. They got us after all. The last night in Hildago was something I'll never forget. During our final song, Fly On Your Wings, I experienced another frozen moment. Somehow, this one was a little different than all of the others. It was as if my whole journey of being a drummer was coming to a climax. I was on stage on the last show of the tour, during the last song, opening for my idol's kiss in front of 15,000 screaming fans. I knew I had a long career ahead of me, but I realized that even if I never did anything else beyond this moment, I would still be forever happy just being able to reflect back on this magical experience with KISS. For the next 4 minutes and 18 seconds, I gave every bit of passion, energy, and heart that I had building inside of me since I first saw KISS 25 years earlier. I know it's cliche, but I literally left everything I had on the stage that night. A few minutes after we got off stage, we were greeted by the guys in KISS who were about to take the stage themselves. They embraced us and said, Great job, guys. Eric gave me a big hug and said, See you down the road, kid. I thanked Gene for everything they did for us and told him I would never forget it and maybe I could even return the favor one day. He said, Nothing would make me happier, Butterfuco. And just like that, the tour was over. <laughs> 